Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to today's conversation on the Italian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm delighted to be here with Giorgio Bertellini, who is professor of film, television, and media at the University of Michigan, and is an award-winning scholar known for his groundbreaking work on Italian cinema as it reaches across the Atlantic. We have for some time been the great beneficiaries of Professor Bertellini's painstaking and thorough scholarship on early Italian cinema. In reality, his research in cinema studies extends beyond transatlantic Italian cinema and cinematic culture to include, for example, studies of Serbian filmmaker Emir Kusturica. We're going to return to the transatlantic aspect of Giorgio Bertellini's scholarship as we go along in our conversation, which today centers on his recently published book entitled The Divo and the Duce, Promoting Film Stardom and the Political Leadership in 1920s America, published in the Cinema Cultures in Contact series with the University of California Press. This remarkable book tells the story of the relationship between celebrity culture, charismatic leadership, and national sovereignty as it plays out on both sides of the Atlantic from roughly 1917 to 1933 or so. Bertolini's cast includes Woodrow Wilson, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Rudolph Valentino and Benito Mussolini, respectively the Divo and the Duce. Bringing together star studies, cinema studies, political science, Italian studies, and American studies, we learn to think in new ways about cinema, political authority, masculinity, and race in Italian cinema and beyond. Giorgio Bertolini, welcome to the Italian Studies Channel. Thanks so much for having me. The Divo and the Duce, Promoting Film Stardom and the Political Leadership in 1920s America, consists of three parts, which track more or less in historical order with some, uh, with some overlaps and some flashbacks, we could call them, from about 1917 to uh, the end of 1933. And at the end of the first part of your book, you neatly lay out two questions that allow me to ask you to describe for our listeners the scape, the, the shape, and the scope of your study. First, you ask how two racially othered foreigners, and that is the Divo Rudolf Valentino and the Duce Benito Mussolini, became leading figures in America. The second question you pose for yourself is how two icons of chauvinist Latin masculinity became public opinion leaders in a nation undergoing a major democratic expansion in terms of gender, equality, social mobility, and political representation. So could I ask you to describe the organization of your study and how it allows you to get at these questions? Certainly. Well, thank you. This is a great question. And and, uh, it comes obviously at the end of the first part before I develop the sections on Valentino and Mussolini. Now, these questions 
makes sense if we have a way to deal with two, you know, Valentino and Mussolini, somehow on the same ground, on the same uh, perspective. And the problem is that they're both very different. Uh, they're different from one another. Valentino was, was born in, uh, in the south, in, provin- in the province of Foggia, in 1895, and became famous in the March of 1921. Now, dates here are important. Mussolini was born in 1883, which means 12 years earlier. He became prime minister at the end of October 1922, which is about 18 months later. And then for about five years, they're both famous. As for the domain of their professional excellence, if, if we can say that, one is film, one is Hollywood, and the other one is politics, and particularly Italian politics. So on what ground do we deal them, do we, do we treat them together when we ask the question that you just asked, how is it possible that these two icons of chauvinist last Latin masculinity became leading figures in America? So in my, in my approach, I changed perspective over time. Um, the first, let's say there are three major methods, and the methods I've been using in this book is the third one. But for a long time, I struggled with two, which I thought were helpful, and in reality, my view were kind of misleading. The first one was to compare Valentino and Mussolini in terms of their screen persona, that is, how they appear in photographs, in film, but also in in uh, in. Uh, uh, accounts in the press, whether it's the film trade periodicals or the political press. There are ways in which they are characterized as personas, as individuals with physical, with gestural uh, tendencies and so forth. The second sort of ground of comparison is the context. Well, well, how do I compare sort of a film context where you have film spectators, fandom or early instances of fandom, and film periodicals to a political arena where you have parties, where you have ideological confrontations and so forth. And that made, had I stuck with those two perspectives, the screen persona and the context, I would not have been able to really understand why they became famous in the 20s. What made me jump to a third method, which doesn't mean dismissal of the first two, it means complementing this first two, was understanding that between their image and their reception, there was a class of individuals, which I would call, let's say, mediators, publicity men, ambassadors, businessmen from Wall Street, studio executives who had an interest in making sure that these two were to become famous and popular. Now, now it's easier to understand why were these two icon of chauvinistic masculinity famous in America? Well, because you have to look at the interest of these groups, and you have Hollywood interest in promoting new, exciting, appealing, provocative kinds of celebrities, and you have political centers like the State Department, economic and financial centers like Wall Street, who have an interest in basically um, play down the anti-democratic 
uh, regime that Italy is during fascism and push for a personalization of their politics because the personalization makes the regime acceptable and it's, and it's important to accept fascism because for Wall Street means that J.P. Morgan and other banks can do business with Italy after the end of World War I, so in times of reconstruction. And in terms of the State Department, because Italy can finally be serious about paying back, back the debt uh, that it owes to the U.S. So what's the, what's the aha moment? What's the epiphany that brings together uh, Mussolini, uh, uh, Mussolini and Valentino uh, together? Because they never met, right? We, at least so far as we know, they, they never met each other literally. So what's the, what's the thing that brings them together? So a great question again. So the, the, as it often happens, the sort of center of gravity of uh, research lies outside that research. So my work was on Valentino Mussolini. And then suddenly, as I'm, as I, one day, as I am um, going through, lifting, uh, lifting through a periodical, a trade periodical named Motion Picture Magazine, I find in the February 1927 um, issue a striking image. It's an image of Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks at their second home in um, California with some friends, and they're all doing the fascisti salute. And the, and the uh, caption, the, the, the caption says, that they are very much grateful that they had been invited and met Mussolini a year earlier in Rome. And then there is a sentence that I don't know whether belonged to any of the speakers in the image, but certainly was a kind of editorial perspective in the sentences. There is nothing like going to an authority. And I thought, huh, this is interesting on a number of ways. A, because the very sentence, the content of the sentence, right? celebrity culture, the authority figures. And the second one is, I did not know that A, Pickford and Fairbanks had been in Rome seeing Mussolini. B, I did not know that they had an interest in politics in the mid-20s. I had heard, and I dig, this is where the historical research helps, I had sort of uh, read somewhere that during World War I, they had lent their talent and their fame to the cause of World War I. But the moment in which I started looking into it, I found out that the Great War is really a, a, a place where a number of answers and a number of questions to my research were uh, located. And that's why the first three chapters are not about Valentino Mussolini, but are about what the media-shy Wilson did in order to persuade uh, Americans that going to war, despite his earlier promises, was the right thing to do. I, I can go through some dates here. In, in, in um, um, April of 1917, April 6, the U.S. declared war against Germany. A week later, eight days later, Wilson creates a new governmental entity called CPI, Committee on Public Information, which is nothing else but a propaganda office. And then he asked a number of his uh, ministries to organize similar propaganda initiative, which means making sure that the press 
um, you know, newspapers, posters, films, um, all sorts of media are actually broadcasting the rationale for going to war. Uh, this is very important because on June 15, 1917, which is the, the day after the CPI is created, you have the creation of the Espionage Act, which is a federal law still in the books. It has been changed a number of times, but um, Edward Snowden uh, has, been, has been charged on the basis of that, of that law. Um, now, the Treasury Department is very inventive and comes up with the Liberty Bond campaigns because, because the government is, is, needs funding, needs financial support, and they create these um, initiatives, and the stars are the ones that sell the bond to Americans. And it's not just Pickford and Fairbairn, it's also Chaplin and, and uh, Hayakawa, who is a Japanese-American actor. But the greatest actor at the time, particularly as a couple, were Fairbanks and uh, Pickford. And it's very interesting because the two who basically sold the war to America as basically the war is supposed to end all wars, the war for democracy versus the um, sort of um, monarchies of Europe, a few, not even a decade later, were supporting a dictatorship. Right. So let's just go back to that image, your your aha epiphany image, which is Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and his wife, America's darling, Mary Pickford, doing the Roman salute, the fascist salute, their arms up straight, which will eventually look, you know, very much like the the, the salute of National Socialism. And you asked yourself, so they were in 1927. How did they get there? How did they get to 1927 and that particular thing? And you go back to uh, 10 years earlier, and still tracking Pickford and uh, Fairbanks Jr., you know, the, at the acme of their careers, from what I've read uh, in your book, yeah. and uh, the ways in which they helped Wilson advance the war effort when America entered the war, and then also uh, popularized um, uh, patriotism, right? I mean, that's the other important aspect of, of the work that they did, um, bringing together Hollywood, uh, the State Department, you know, Washington, and New York. Is that a fair characterization? It is. And the outcome of this is the increased importance of these mediators, of these PR, publicity, individuals, and institutions who are able to use stars as um, hooks, basically, to sell an idea or to sell a product. And so the politiza politization of Hollywood and the um, turning of Washington into a, um, uh, I wouldn't say glamorous, but certainly into a place where a celebrity operates, those are things that the First War accelerated. Um, so, Giorgio, could I ask you to, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with um, cinematic culture uh, in the silent era, well, as they say, films were never silent at that time, but what an experience would have been for them and what, what are the kinds of materials that they would have been seeing, the, the kinds of things that you precisely um, uh, unearth in your archival research? What are the kinds of documents and, and what's that experience like for them? For them, meaning 
for the spectators, for people who are consuming cinema around that time? Yes. Uh, um, So what you start having in the early to meet teams is this alliance between film studios and periodicals. If you pick up a periodical from 1917 and you start having many of them because you start having the increased power of fandom, of stardom and thus fandom. Fandom basically is the sort of you know, affectionate, repeated uh, following of a star by um, a moviegoer. You see that these periodicals are filled with photographs. Where do they get them? They get them from the studios. So from the mid-teens, say, you start having um, the film industry that certainly explores Western, gangster, comedy, melodrama, but learns the value of turning moviegoers into repeat moviegoers. And the key technology for that is the star. Uh, Pickford and Fairbanks are the all-American stars. But that's not enough. You also want to expand storytelling to other areas and include stars that don't look necessarily like Fairbanks and Pickford. And that's where the the fascination for uh, someone maybe darker, someone who has a very different way of moving on screen comes in for both male and females. And so the uh, late part of the teens and then the 20s is the, really the period of the explosion of film stardom. And that's the key technology for the uh, national development, the national success of uh, Hollywood. And after World War I, I would say even of internationally speaking. So thank you for explaining the term stardom, which is in the title uh, of your of your study. I was wondering if you could, uh, for listeners, also gloss uh, "divo" and "duce," the other two important terms of the title of your work. So um, "divo" clearly comes from opera, um, and it refers to usually is in the female uh, form, and it refers to the sort of star performer who's supposed to have divine features, meaning it's not he or she is not one of us. It's someone who has divine gifts for delivering music on stage. The duce, the duce is a term, is, is an Italian word that comes from the Latin ducere, which means leading. It's basically leader. What's interesting is that uh, while we often associate it with um, Mussolini, because it seems nobody else adopted that expression. Mussolini himself had a newspaper called Il Popolo d'Italia, and at the time when Wilson um, was particularly famous and celebrated in Italy, and this was in 1918, he titled a cover of this newspaper uh, by calling Wilson the Duce of the Free People. And so uh, it's basically, you know, an expanded, augmented leader uh, in ways in which um, were not really common in Italy. The the prime minister was an average person, was not someone whose private life was of interest to anybody. And so Duce clearly um, expands the understanding, the aura of the of the political leader toward heroism, glory larger than life, 
Um, and those are obviously features that Mussolini had all the interest of appropriating in order to establish the cult of his own leadership. Right. So those are the three poles. Then the Divo, the Duce, and Stardom are going to be these three poles around which you um, uh, drape the uh, the tent uh, of your of your study. Um, but you know what's interesting to me is, especially since Mussolini is one of the characters here, um, is the perhaps the absent term from the title, which is fascism. Uh, and in February of last year of 2019, you published a piece um, in the blog attached to the Washington Post drawing our contemporary period, so today, into proximity with the era that you discuss in your book, roughly, again, the end of World War I to the very early 1930s and the advent of sound cinema. And your blog post was tantalizingly entitled, uh, When Americans Loved Benito Mussolini and What It Tells Us About Donald Trump's Rise. And I think it could be particularly interesting for readers to hear you talk about that, that post and then more generally, the similarities between between Trump and Mussolini, I know that you have some things to say about that, but also the, the, the distinctions between them. And then um, uh, perhaps something about the crisis of authority and what that's got to do with masculinity, both for uh, Mussolini as well as uh, Trumpian America. Absolutely. So in, in that blog, I tried to um, use what I'd learned in my work on the 20s to read the present. And I think one of the first lines of the blog is, I'm not comparing Trump to what Mussolini was in Italy, but I'm comparing him to how Mussolini became popular in America, at least in the 20s. And I say Mussolini and not fascism because the fascist ideology never really made it here, aside from groups of fascist loyalists. But but the the... The hook, the attraction was Mussolini as a strong leader, a strong anti-democratic um, and very effective um, iconic leader. Now, these similarities between the way in which Trump became president and the way in which Mussolini became popular in the U.S. are not necessarily linked to the ways in which the two of them look, okay, or the two of them sort of operate, but the ways in which certain machinery made them appealing. Now, let me ask you a question. Would Trump be, would have been elected had he not relied on the coverage that television gave him? No, he wouldn't. So there is a way in which the mediators have to be looked at when we compare Trump and Mussolini in America. Secondly, there is also a message that is very similar. After World War I, there was a pushback against democracy, against the Wilsonian democracy, and there was a need for strong leadership. Then in 1919, approved in 1920, you had the um, amendment for women uh, vote. And so you have the understanding and the appreciation for a strong male chauvinistic leader with a nationalist brand of effective governance who's really not interested in democracy. And what I found interesting as I was looking at Valentino Mussolini is that there are quotes attributed to Valentino 
in which he says democracy is for losers. Every nation needs a strong leader. And, and, and interesting, there is even more similarity between the way in which Valentino speaks in these interviews and the way in which, or is made to speak, and the ways in which Trump presented himself as, you know, let's cut bureaucracy, let's get things done, pro-business, and so forth. Now, a number of historians have stressed how Mussolini was um, uh, anti, one of the appeal of Mussolini was his anti-Bolshevism. And that's obviously there, but that does not explain the celebrity status of Mussolini. You cannot become a celebrity if your main message is I'm anti-Bolshevik. That clearly attracts you know, sympathies, but the celebrity appeal is something else. And, you know, in, in the case of Trump, if you want to continue or close the circle of the similarities between Mussolini's message and Trump's message is that Trump obviously was against um, liberals, uh, environmental protection, uh, and absolutely uh, committed to the well-being of business, you know, and, 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 and uh, uh, unfettered business relationships. And Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's really, it's really, it's fascinating, I think, that, um, I mean, one remembers the interview with Steve Bannon, who talked about the importance of, Ju- of the work of Julius Ebola, which was also foundational to an understanding of fascist ideology in Italy at the beginning of the regime, right? So it's, it's, it's both terrifying and um, really interesting. Uh, how, so, so, Let's go back to mild-mannered Woodrow Wilson for a moment. And is the so the expansion of women's rights, of social mobility, of if we will, a kind of a democratization in in um, in granting the franchise to women, for example. So are Valentino and Mussolini then um, receiving the uh, the projected desires unconscious for the strong man, uh, that it's no longer um, palatable for the American uh, electorate or populace to openly say that and they go to the movie theaters and or and and and, and work it out that way. Yeah, I mean I <clears throat> you do have um, individuals who find Valentino's misogynist pronunciation and Mussolini's own misogyny uh, horrendous. But you do have publication who capitalize uh, because these pronunciations, these statements are very interesting, are meaning they are newsworthy, they sell, particularly in the context of post-1920. And it's as if Hollywood, uh, in the case of Valentino, realizes that a person like him who seems to be pushing back against women's rights um, can do things that uh, Fairbanks cannot, can push the envelope in ways uh, 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 Fairbanks cannot, which means that you can have Valentino do a number of things on screen that are very contradictory. And so uh, he's very sentimental. He seems to be at times very, very rough with women, but also very, very romantic. Um, plus in real life, so to speak, let's say in the private life that the studio sold, um, you have Valentino being paired oftentimes with very strong women. 
So the opposite of the kind of companion that in statements he seems to be preferring. I mean, a lot of these, the women that Valentino sort of hangs out with are, are strong, professionally capable and competent and successful women. And on, whereas Mussolini is rather different, I mean, with, with, the, with the exception of Margherita Sarfatti, who was a Venetian Jewish intellectual um, with whom he had an affair in the early 20s, most of the women Mussolini um, was associated with were rather traditional or were sort of subservient to, to himself. Uh, but in America, Valentino was able to um, walk to sort of path and on the one hand being being misogynist, being forceful, the strong man, but on the other one, being very sentimental, very romantic, and um, um, elicit a kind of erotic appeal that, you know, even a Fairbanks, with whom a lot of, you know, for whom a lot of women felt affection, etc., he was not able to, uh, was not made to elicit. And so there is a there is an um, interesting case of erotization of his exoticism that went in hand, hand in hand with a pushback against uh, uh, women's rights. Right. But what's interesting it, in, in the book, what's so interesting is that it, it, the women are everywhere among the mediators. Are they not? The presence of women among the screenwriters, for example, at one um is it uh, who is the screenwriter who is the highest paid of all screenwriters? You said that was working on some of the films. Um, you met this, right? Gene Matt, who is a, a lifelong friend of Valentino's as well, right? Correct. Um, and so, what's so you've answered the 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 the, the question, and I didn't mean to reduce uh, cinema goers in the in the early part of the twentieth century as to having you know the inability to sit in a sit to sit in a seat in a darkened theater and say, oh well. I can see what they're trying to show me. I know that there's all kinds of agency that we can ascribe to cinema guards. I'm not, I'm not willing to say that they check their agency at the door yeah. uh, or surrender it with their ticket. That's not what I want to suggest. But um, you did answer um, my question about the, the gendered aspects of this. But you know, crucial to your argument are some ideas concerning the discourse of race, nativism, and isolationism in the United States uh, in the 1920s following the conclusion of the First World War. And so this is the backdrop against which the story of this archetypal Latin lover, Rudolf Valentino, or the projected Latin lover, uh, is acted out. And could, let, let's speak specifically about some of the films that perhaps some of our listeners are familiar with in uh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, The Sheik, Son of the, of the Sheik. How, how do those map out some of, um, some of these discourses about, again, race, nativism, and isolationism? shoring them up or contradicting them? So, um, very interesting question. I mean, the, 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 let's take the chic because it's um, of paramount importance in the uh, rise to fame of Valentino, even though it's the second one, right? The first one is The Four Horsemen, which came out in March of 21. The chic came out in November of the same year. Now, in the Sheik, Valentino is an Arab, allegedly. And not just any Arab. He's a Sheik, so he's a leader. And actually, the first and last intertitles of the film, you have the word leader in them. Now, Valentino in that film appears to be an Arab who's able to persuade a young British woman who doesn't want to get married, who's 
basically says to a, a friend who's basically she's never been kissed. Somehow she doesn't want to have anything to do with men. And he made her fall in love with him, even though it's a kind of narratively unexplained. And because the relationship with between a British woman and an Arab man is problematic from a racial standpoint, in the end, you, you start having doubts, you start having a narrative solution that basically showcases that Valentino is the son of a British man and a Spanish woman. And the Spanish woman explains the fact that he's a kind of a dark complexion. And so her falling in love with him suddenly is safe. Now, this solution, this narrative solution that brings together melodrama and race was not just of that film. It was a staple, a recurring solution of a number of so-called desert novels that British and American literature had been produced for years. And the novel, The Sheik, was one of those successes. And when I say desert novels, we need to understand that it's as if it's a realm of fantasy where forbidden things are made possible for 180 pages. And then in the last 20 pages, you have a narrative solution that made that fantasy somehow legally or publicly uh, legitimate. It's not, um, it's not something that is completely out of bounds, which is like the love of a, for a, white, of a white woman for an Arab man. Now, why is this possible? Why is it possible to treat Valentino as, on the one hand, completely other, and on the other hand, as just a tank person? I think we need to go back to questions of and distinctions among categories. One is whiteness. The second one is race. I'm not going to talk about ethnicity, because ethnicity in the 20s makes no sense. And I'll tell you in a second why. Italians in the U.S. were, from a legal standpoint, white. They could purchase property. They could marry whoever they wanted. Sure, there were a few cases of, in which they were not perceived as white. They were condemned. There was also some um, uh, violent events that occurred in Louisiana in 1890 and so forth. But by and large, Italians were enjoy the perks of whiteness. Now, this doesn't mean that they were not racialized, meaning does not mean that they were not perceived to be biologically different. And by, by saying biologically different, we mean that they love in a different way. They are violent in a different way. They are in those activities invested with their body. Um, and so Valentino could walk these two tracks, and on the one hand, be perceived as different, which means a kind of forbidden. But there is no actual miscegenation with Valentino because ultimately he is in real life Italian and in the narrative story is a Spaniard. And that allows the story to be safe, but it also allows the story to maintain his own exotization because of his racial difference. You know that's it's it's really fascinating. Um, the the you also talk about. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about how it resonates. This part about um, 
Valentino and and he's becoming safe or he's whitened or he's made palatable somehow. Um, it compares also to something that you describe happening to Mary Pickford too, and in, in the roles that she played yeah. right around the 19th century about the whitening of Mary Pickford. So it's not limited to Valentino. No, it is not. Um, but in the case of Pickford, uh, we have a different sort of phenomenal occurring. Uh, there was no question about, obviously, Pickford um, wideness. She was of Anglo-Saxon background. She was born in Toronto. But very interestingly, Pickford was making films where she was impersonating Latina or Native American women before 1917. The moment in which the U.S. enters the war, she drops all those racialized individuals, uh, characters, I should say, and only does Americans. And it's because of, and, and it's after that period that she becomes America's sweetheart. She's not American sweetheart before 1917. And it's after she becomes American sweetheart that um, facial cream companies uh, propose her to sponsor uh, products like you know facial cream supposed to maintain your skin white and there are a number of advertisements in the trade press and in film periodicals so her widening is a kind of a nationalizing uh, process um, in the case of Valentino one thing I should add is that there was um, there was never a strong link between Valentino and the Italian-American community, um, who in return did not love him much until he was dead. Then after he died, he became you know, an iconic figure because he was someone who came from the South and had made it, had become famous. But while he was in New York, he rarely visited the Lower East Side, the Italian-American community. And you can see the difference with another Italian who was successful but behaved in a very different way. I'm referring to the opera singer Enrico Caruso, who died actually in 1921. Caruso had continuous relationships with the Lower East Side, to the point that in 1918, he made a film with Paramount called My Cousin, where he played two roles, one of um, basically himself, an opera star the Met, very successful, and the cousin of this star, who's a um, a barber and who lives in the Lower East Side. And so even fictionally, he went back to there. He used to leave, he used to you know, eat a lot in the Lower East Side and so had very a number of publicized events linking him you know, uh, to the Italian-American community even though he lived on Fifth Avenue and used to be a star at the Met. You don't find evidence of that link with you know, so let's go back to, so it's 1927 is the year of the death of Rudolf Valentino, who died of peritonitis, I think, right? Um, uh, it was phony appendicitis, and he really had ulcerated colon or whatever, whatever. What was it exactly the cause of death? Peritonitis was the cause of death, but I forget what it was that led to that infection. Oh, we don't know. Oh, we don't know. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to focus on or you know, hone in on 1927 again, which was the date of that photograph that you saw of Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford in the fascist salute and the 
year of the death of Valentino because there's another moment where there's a near miss with Mussolini, isn't it? I mean, it's it's posthumous, but um, I was wondering if you could talk about the episode of the wreath that appears that's uh, allegedly comes from Mussolini himself. Yes. So um, Valentino actually died in 26. Oh, pardon. Okay. Mm -hmm. In August of 26. And uh, he dies in New York because, even though he used to live in L.A., because he was uh, promoting The Son of the Sheik, which was the film that came out posthumously. And um, Campbell Funeral Home was the place that... um, had his body after he died and was released by the hospital. And um, there was a, a reef with a sign from Benito Mussolini and two Italian-American posting guard outside Campbell Funeral Home and being, you know, there were pictures taken. And uh, Valentino's friends knew that he was not fascist. Not that Valentino was an anti-fascist. He was mainly not interested in politics in that way. And so there was a there was a, conf- a kind of violent confrontation, but the press still published these uh, photographs. And the question was, did Mussolini, who had refused to see Valentino in Rome a few years earlier, and Valentino was not particularly known in Italy, by the way, uh, did Mussolini refuse to, did Mussolini send, order someone to place that leaf? And the answer is no. The, the archive in Rome basically told me that it was the initiative of, uh, of an officer in New York who just had acted on his own uh, and uh, Mussolini reprehended him, but he was, uh, he was never really from Mussolini himself. But clearly, this was another opportunity for a kind of convergence between the two uh, or misconvergence between the two. But it's interesting because the fascists, after his death, tried to appropriate his body and his fame for their own purposes, and Valentino's friends uh, refused to go along with that. You know, it's interesting when you go into the archive, it's interesting the kinds of things, the documents one finds or one one doesn't find, and um, the very kinds of, uh, the chance to try out your hypotheses or to have them shot down, that's the other thing that can happen when you find archival materials. And I uh, thought it might be useful for our listeners um, to hear you describe the archival research that you conducted uh, for this uh, specific book. Um, And I was hoping that you could start by saying a little bit about archival research in general. Um, Just as an aside, uh, listeners should know that uh, an adjective frequently attached to Giorgio Bertolini's research is meticulous. You find this repeatedly in reviews of his work. And so I was wondering if the meticulous film historian and historian of cinema could talk about the archival research more generally and then specifically archival research uh, for this book. Um, well, thank you. The, the archives are an amazing um, source of energy for me. Um, and I, you know, Whenever you read about a topic and then you go into an archive that is more or less related to that topic, the perspective, the hypothesis, the sort of contemporary preoccupations uh, that inform my initial interest, they tend to disappear because papers and documents speak a very different language. Um, So when I go into archives, I do basically two things. I cast my net wide 
And so, which means like Xerox or take photographs of an, an enormous amount of stuff. Because I don't know what already happened. It's not like going to an archive and I have already an interpretation or a, I have an hypothesis, but shortly after I have to change it and I don't know where I'll be going. So I collect as much as possible. Um, and in this case, I collected for five, six years. I had to go to Chicago, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, UCLA, the Academy. Uh, but it was the summer in Rome, which was uh, five years ago, six years ago, which was foundational. The State Archive, the Diplomatic Archive at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Archivio Storico Capitolino, which w- were places where I basically found the you know, the, the, the correspondence, the critical information, because everything that came from the U.S. Embassy, the Italian Embassy in Washington, went back to Rome, and those were... Uh, key documents. The second thing that I do, aside from casting the net wide, is uh, get images. And uh, archive have images. It sometimes surprises me how many historians um, debate how many images to use in their books or what to put on the cover. Archives have images, and my suggestion is buy those images. And later on, all you have to do is get the permit, the permission to publish them, but you do have them already at the quality you want. And I work with images. I, I write looking at images because they're very telling and, and they provide sources of for future research. And so the, the image that is on the cover of the book, the two images, one come from Rome, one come from Hollywood, and they're very similar. One is, is, is of uh, Valentino with, posing with a bust, and the other one is Mussolini posing with his own bust. You know, each one has their own bust. And they're very, they're very, and they go together. To me, that somehow, uh, when I found those images, I was able to even imagine the book as an object uh, carrying an argument that is more or less uh, coherent. But the, the research is, is energizing, but it's also, you know, um, it takes an enormous amount of time going through the material after you have secured it. Uh, so you've teed me up pretty well here for what is going to be one of my last questions uh, today, um, and that is about the transatlantic aspect of your research. Because you know, across two massive and uh, impeccably researched studies, this one, the Divo and the Duce, and your 2009 study entitled "Italy and Early American Cinema: Race, Landscape, and the Picturesque," published by Indiana University Press. You pursue what we could call a transatlantic approach to Italian studies and the history of Italian cinema. Um, I know what I think can be gained by a transatlantic uh, approach, but I really would love to hear you tell me and our listeners what you think about transatlantic studies, specifically with the corpus that you or the, the archive, if we could use that word, that you are specifically interested in. I would really value that. So um, for me, transatlantic um, studies means um, to identify problems that are inherently transatlantic. So it's not a matter of an approach or a perspective that one can develop, further invent, but the nature of the problems that you are interested in is inherently transatlantic, or lends itself naturally to a transatlantic approach. So, for instance, the question of migration 
is transatlantic. In the picturesque book, I had first two books, one on representation of Southerners in Italy before they migrate. Second book, representation of Southern Italians in New York after they migrate. And I needed a link. And the, and the travel, the voyage of this form, of this visual form called the picturesque, followed them. And that was to me the link. So now I have a link, iconographic, ideological, formal, between the two books. So the book somehow became one and became inherently transatlantic because I have a problem. You know, what happened when migrants move together with a visual form that had been used to depict them? Does the visual form travel with them or not? And it did. So that became very easy to deploy transatlantic sort of framework for the problem at hand. The same for fascism in America. You cannot understand fascism in America without doing research in Rome. You have to understand the way in which embassies work, the way in which distribution of films across the Atlantic works, the way in which a number of groups Fascist groups in New York are interested in maintaining a relationship with with um, fascists in Italy, um, and so that became very became very natural for me to link, link the two because ambassadors travel uh, both American and Italian, and so they left a trace in both countries, and uh, my job was to trace it. Yeah, that's so aptly put, and I'm I'm struck by how. Um, your focus as a film historian is on the the era of of cinema. So since the you know the la- the the very tail end of the nineteenth century onward, um, with a with a special focus on um, silent cinema uh, or early cinema and its culture. But this transatlantic the problems that you describe as inherently transatlantic, one could transpose into different historical periods, right? It need not simply, well, I'm not saying that that your formulation of this is simple at all, but it, it need not only map or track with uh, the great migrations from the 19th century onward. One can obviously think of, you know, travel literature of Italians outside of Italy. And again, following those traces, as you describe, right? Whether they be, you know, Marco Polo or... Uh, in the recent book, Barbara Spackman's recent book about uh, Italian voyagers to, to Ottoman lands. Um, that's another great example. Or, you know, to follow colonial enterprises, which for Italy is um, particular, right? It's the the experience in uh, the uh, very late 19th and 20th century of um, Italy's um, uh, am ambitions, aspirations toward colonial enterprises is quite different from some of the other um, uh, empires that were, uh, that were established. But um, it's that transatlantic, it's, the, it's for the trace outside, it's for the vestige of, of Italy uh, that is in encounter with something different, something outside of the peninsula that I think is such a rich vein to mine for um, locating Italian studies. And uh, the, the two books that you have um, uh, ferociously um, 
I, 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 when I think about the the footnotes, the density of the bibliography, the 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 command of the span of materials from, for example, in the Devo and the Duce, all of the materials of all of these mediators, and just um, marshalling all of that into this again remarkable study that starts with uh, that 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 1927 photograph, and from there goes back to recover. Um, the U.S. entry into the war and, and tries to get at uh, the First World War and tries to get at, um, you know, how did Pickford and Fairbanks, um, how, how did that happen? What, what does it mean to go to an authority? Mm-hmm. And um, that's it. It's, uh, on all levels, on all semiotic levels, is that photograph uh, intriguing, I must say. Mm-hmm. Um we are approaching the end of our time. You've been extraordinarily generous with us uh, today, Giorgio Bertellini. Um, but before we close, I'd really like to know what you're working on now. Oh, um, I am collecting. So I'm amassing material on uh, two sort of projects. One is on photojournalism in the U.S. and in Italy. In, from the mid '30s to the late '50s, uh, and my hypothesis is that there are connections there. Um, photographs travel, and um, I'm very interested in the way in which um, editors work with photographers. Editor of periodicals work with photographers, and I'm looking at papers of individual editors uh, who did that and. There are a number in Bologna, for instance. And the second one I'm working on is on, um, this is purely cinema, is flops, meaning, and I'm actually teaching a class. It's on on uh, American film that failed miserably at the, at the box office. And it's, uh, it's not just a film that failed. It's a film that the professionals um, thought it could do extremely well, kind of blockbuster, and it didn't. And I believe flops are major sources of historical information about the industry and about American audience and about cultural trends. But film history books tend to list only successful films. So there is a way in which, from Cleopatra on, one can write, one can imagine a different kind of American film history through the examples of uh, flops. And um, so I'm teaching this for the first iteration of this class and look forward to So uh, in addition to Cleopatra, what are some other flops that we might consider? What's on, In other words, what's on your syllabus? Um, I don't want to give away. Oh, the... that's fine. That's fine. I, that's perfectly fine. I understand. <laughs> I understand. I, so let's say... Uh, It'll be up for our next appointment. When you write that book, we will talk about the flops that uh, that make up that that particular corpus. Uh, so um, we are uh, thanking Professor Giorgio Bertellini uh, of the University of Michigan for his conversation today about his study entitled uh, "The Devo and the Duce: Promoting Film Stardom and the Political Leadership in 1920s America," uh, published by the University of California Press. And um, thanks so much, uh, Giorgio, for your time. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you. 